If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Tonight, a four-part drama called Catherine the Great starts on Sky Atlantic, starring Helen Mirren. So for today's podcast, we've got a conversation about the formidable Russian empress with Janet Hartley. Janet's an emeritus professor at LSE specialising in Russian history. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met her in London to find out more about the real woman that inspired the series. So many of our listeners will be familiar with the name Catherine the Great. Um, But for those who don't know any more than perhaps her her moniker, can you give us a brief introduction to um, the Empress and, and the period that she was ruling? Catherine wasn't Russian. I think that's the first thing to say. She was a a German princess who married into the the family and became empress. But she was probably one of the most successful, one of the greatest of Russian rulers. She is known as Catherine the Great. And not that many rulers in Russian history are known as the Great. She was on the throne in the second half of the 18th century, from 1762 to 1796. And that's the time when, certainly in foreign policy, 
Russia really became a, a great power. So I, I think that is one of the reasons why she's so well known. The other one, of course, is that she had a larger-than-life personality, shall we say. So there are plenty of, of myths that have, have sprung up after her death and indeed during her life, and I'd love to address some of those in a little while, but if we can just talk first about that rise that you mentioned in your first answer. Um, she she rose so quickly um, and through her marriage to Peter. Can you talk about um, who Peter was and how that facilitated this, this very rapid rise for Catherine? Well, Peter III, the person who became Peter III, was the heir to the Russian throne. The empress at the time, Elizabeth, had no children and he was the nearest Romanov to be called upon. And Catherine was chosen as his bride. So she simply was the wife of what became uh, the ruler of Russia. In her case, Peter III alienated most of the elites in Russia and Catherine became involved in a coup to overthrow him. So that's why she became empress. It's not a myth to say that she's a usurper, <laughs> uh, but I, I think many people who supported her in, in 1762 might say, looking back at her reign, that this was a, a good judgment because she took Russia forward, certainly internationally and domestically as well, and Peter III came across as very capricious. So she wasn't Russian, she had no right to the throne, and that always made her vulnerable on the, the throne. And that is partly, I think, one of the reasons for the myths that grew around her lovers, because being a woman on the throne, having usurped her husband, who was then assassinated, probably not with her orders, we don't know, but it was convenient for her, that made her position always vulnerable, always difficult. And it was difficult when she was involved with other men, of course. So can you give us a sense of what Russia was like when Catherine came to power? Well, I would argue that it was already a European state, although many people would uh, not agree uh, with that. But certainly by the standards of Central and Western Europe, this was a, a backward country. It was an enormous country, of course, even then. And that was part of the cause of its backwardness economically. But it hadn't really taken off industrially. Uh, the social structure we would regard as backward. There, were, there was a noble class, relatively small noble class, and then the social feature, which is always a scar on Russia in the 18th and 19th century, is serfdom. The peasants who were tied to noble land. Not all peasants were serfs, but those on noble land were tied to that land and had very few rights, almost no rights. And then an absence of what we'd call a middle class. It's not the case that there were no merchants, uh, but there were far fewer merchants um, with far fewer rights and power in the state than you had in, in the West. So I think the social structure was definitely very different. In religion, it's a Christian country, but it was Russian Orthodox. It hadn't gone, undergone a reformation like Western and Central Europe. Russian Orthodoxy is Christianity, but there were no great teaching orders in, in the Russian Orthodox Church. So it, it seemed more insular, if you, if you like, than the church in, in the West. In cultural terms, this was before the great period of Russian writers, of Russian artists, of Russian musicians. It wasn't the case that there was no cultural life, but compared with Catherine's own upbringing in Germany, it, it seemed backward. So can we talk then about Catherine's um, policies or attitudes towards Russia? Um, she was very um, well read. She engaged with many great ideas at the time. Um, so how did she... Um, approach policy and law um, as a ruler? I think Catherine, from a German background, saw Russia as a European state, and it's something she states in her instruction. Russia is a European state. 
One of her rather more spiteful advisers at this point pointed out that three quarters of it was in Asia. But this wasn't a geographical statement, it was a cultural statement. And I think she genuinely believed that some of the best ideas of Europe at the time could be translated into Russia, sometimes almost pathetically naively. So that, for example, Catherine Blesser read uh, um, legal documents, Blackstone on, on English law in French, she didn't read English, and she thought that some concepts like the concept of equity could simply be translated into Russia in a completely different legal system. So in some ways you might say that's ambitious, well, it's ambitious, but it's also rather naive. It's not that Catherine never left St. Petersburg. She did leave St. Petersburg. She travelled to Moscow. She travelled a, a couple of times uh, quite deep into Russia, to Kazan, which was a part Tartar city, down to the south when she'd acquired territories in the south. But it's doubtful whether you could say that she ever really engaged with real Russia. But then what rulers do? <laughs> so understanding how serfdom actually worked, what it was like to be an impoverished nobleman with half a dozen serfs and to be desperate to hang on to them, that sort of thing she didn't understand. And I don't think she understood that you couldn't simply translate Western institutions, Western concepts into that social structure. And one obvious example of that is Catherine's urban administration, where she thought Russian towns could become like German towns if you simply gave them a different structure, different institutions, German names, without realising that Russian towns were dominated by nobles and peasants and not by a strong middle class. So this disconnect or this naivety, perhaps on Catherine's part, has led to um, another pervasive myth about her legacy, that she was um, hypocritical. What can you say about that? It's true that at the beginning of her reign, she issued an instruction called an instruction and called an assembly of people to discuss the latest ideas at the time. And the first charge of hypocrisy is that she did indulge in a bit of plagiarism. She stole a lot of the, the instruction from Montesquieu and from other prominent writers at the time. But I think that's imposing a, a modern perception. In her view, she was simply presenting to people ideas which she had engaged with to see they would engage uh, with them. The achievements were certainly far less than she had hoped in Russia. But I think with all rulers, not just with Catherine, there is a very strong case of realpolitik, once you come to the throne, of what you can do within a certain country. And the main charge against Catherine, of course, is that she didn't abolish serfdom. But I think I'd make two defences of that. Uh, one is that nobody else did, really, not until the French Revolution. This is pre-the French Revolution. America had slaves through to the 19th century. There were other social structures in Europe that were not so different from serfdom. And Russia only became looked odd, really, after the French Revolution in the, in the 19th century when they had serfdom. And the other was simply the practicalities of it. Uh, how are you going to abolish serfdom? Who owned the serfs? The nobles. Who were the key members in, in the, of authority in the country, the nobles. Who were the army officers? Nobles. Hardly a police force. So actually, if the nobility opposed it, it was almost impossible to abolish serfdom. And in fact, in Russia, when serfdom was abolished in 1861, it was only after the enormous shock of the Crimean War made people think that there was something fundamentally wrong with Russia. Until that point, they didn't think that because they kept winning wars. <laughs> So I think it's very much a later judgment on Catherine, but one can see how it comes about because she projects herself as, as somebody who's very enlightened, corresponds with Voltaire, with Grimm, uh, with Diderot, invites Diderot to Russia, 
and yet Russia still, in social terms, remains backward. Uh, could we perhaps talk a bit more about the um, political realities she worked in, perhaps the political limitations? Yes, I think Catherine became aware of those limitations very early on. She issued this instruction, she called together a whole group of representatives, mostly nobility, but not just noblemen, merchants, uh, actually non-Russians as well, members of the church, brought them together in this big assembly to discuss these ideas. And that was a testing ground for her, but it was also a reality check because there was no desire to engage with the, the new ideas of the time. She also tried to artificially stimulate a discussion about serfdom and about agriculture. And again, she discovered there was no desire whatsoever to change that. In fact, the contrary. The nobility just wanted to hold on to what they'd got. They didn't want change. And as part of that assembly, she asked people to write their own uh, instructions, their own views from the countryside about what was wrong. And what came back was a, a whole list of things which could be improved, but everything, nothing that looked forward. <laughs> everything looked backwards. So I think she realised the limitations then. And ultimately, the Russian Tsar depended on the support of the Russian nobility and the Russian army officers who were nobles. And there was just a limit to what she could do. What she could do, I think she did, in terms of urban administration, cultural change, institutional change, uh, introducing things like um, more sort of provincial culture, local newspapers that she stimulated, local assemblies for nobles to meet. So all those things were in themselves were quite valuable, but they couldn't get over the fact that you had a society dominated by this noble serf relationship. So she um, clearly wants to come across as very, very learned, very well read. But can you give us a broader sense of what she was like as a woman, what, what it was like at her court? One of the things about Catherine that surprised me when I look at her is, is in many ways she's rather modest and in some ways slightly prudish. She did have displays, of course, and, and dressed uh, in, in the fashions of the time. Uh, she didn't like food very much. People used to complain about the food at her court. Uh, apparently she was completely tone deaf. There was music at court because she knew there had to be music at court. She invited Mozart to come to Russia. He didn't actually go, but she knew to invite him. So she knew what a cultured Western court ought to look like. And I think also with Catherine, unlike some of her predecessors, life at court was not dissimilar from courts elsewhere. It was There was a, a cultured sense, manners were the same. And in that respect, I think somebody, say a diplomat, coming to Russia, going to the Russian court would not feel grossly out of place. Whereas if they'd gone to the Russian court in the reign of Peter I at the beginning of the 18th century, where there were uh, very sort of heavy drinking sessions, for example, they would have felt they'd arrived somewhere that was backward, more primitive than the West. So another myth that perhaps endures about Catherine is that she was her foreign policy was incredibly aggressive for its time. Um, this was something that was um, levelled at her both by contemporaries and since. Do you think that's fair? It is true that Catherine and Catherine's reign, the state of Poland-Lithuania disappeared from the map and it was one of the largest countries in Europe and there was absolutely no consideration of what the people wanted. And she also took swathes of territory in the south and she annexed the Crimea. It wasn't won in war, she simply annexed the Crimea in 1783. It's a slightly feeble defence, but she wasn't the only one. And in fact, the partitions of Poland were initiated not by Catherine, but by Prussia and by Austria, who were fearful that Russia was going to make too many advances into the Balkans in particular. So I think it was a period of very cynical foreign policy where nobody cared about 
national ideas, where nationalism wasn't really a factor. People cared about borders, about power. I think that's, that's true. Uh, I think it's fair to criticise her for that. You could criticise her, certainly not personally, it was a scar on the rain that, uh, that the Russian troops slaughtered civilians when they took Warsaw. I think you could also say that some of the territory that Catherine gained for Russia created problems in the future. There was always a Polish problem for Russia that was never really resolved. On the other hand, I think contemporaries looking at Russia just saw, saw Russia as enormously successful, and this is what they, they feared. Vast areas conquered and good territory as well, more productive land than in Russia, more sophisticated cities in Poland than Russia had. And most of all, that access to the northern shore of the Black Sea and Crimea, which then gave her access out to the Mediterranean. So I don't think at the time people got too concerned about the niceties of it. They saw this as just a, a very aggressive, expansionist country that was some country that you started to fear. And I think Russophobia in, in England starts not in the Crimea, it starts before that, it starts in the end of Catherine's reign, when they begin to see that Russia could threaten the Mediterranean and through that could threaten British possessions as far, as far away as, as India. So, yes, she was aggressive, but she was successful, and I think that's what other countries noted most. And so why do you think this success then has um, been maybe skewed or twisted uh, since her, her death, or, or has it? I'm not sure how much it has. I think that the Polish question has remained, remained alive, of course. But Catherine tried to tackle uh, the, the Polish question in her own way by introducing Russian institutions into Poland. Alexander I tried to tackle it. Nicholas I eventually absorbed Poland into Russia. It was a continual problem. Poland had been a problem before. But I suppose some people would argue that Russia always had to control Poland for its safety. But... Perhaps indirect control would have been better than outright annexation. I think the same is true of territory which is now the uh, western part of Ukraine that Russia absorbed in Catherine's reign. Uh, Ukrainian historians, of course, would say that in two swathes of taking territory, Russia acted uh, most improperly. But from a Russian perspective, my own view is that you have to control the Ukraine to be a great power. <laughs> And I think one can see that today almost in Putin's policies. So from a Russian perspective, those territories had to be controlled for internal security. I don't know if that's an excuse, but it's, it's a reason. <laughs> so you've already spoken about how she was influenced by um, leading thinkers across Europe. Um, and late at the end of her reign came the French Revolution. How did that affect her policies? I think it was a, an enormous shock to Catherine. It was a particular shock when the French king was executed. I think she found that just disgusting, but also very, very threatening. And I think that does explain the number of policies at the end of her reign, particularly towards Poland. Because in the Polish case, after the first partition of Poland, Poland, what was left of Poland, tried to reform itself and passed a constitution, which the Poles call the 3rd of May 1791 constitution. And Catherine regarded that as revolutionary. I'm not sure that it was, but she regarded it as revolutionary and she talked about it being infected by French poison. And I think this made her more aggressive towards Poland than otherwise she would have been. And I think domestically as, as well, it made her more repressive. She was more repressive against writers who criticised the regime. She uh, shut that down. It came at the end of her life when I think she was less able to deal with it. 
But it, it was a, a shock to the system, particularly because, of course, she'd admired France so much, and yet this country, which had been projected as so civilised, then had a revolution and then, to her mind, murdered the legitimate ruler. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She had to, probably about 12 lovers in her reign, so I think one could lead that to the judgment of readers or listeners to decide whether that's promiscuous or not. I think there were a number of factors that make Catherine look more voracious, if you, if you like, than other rulers. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So if we move to um, Catherine's personal life then, it seems that we can't talk about the myths of Catherine the Great without looking at the um, accusations of promiscuity um, or of uh, insatiability, perhaps. Um, what can you tell us about Catherine's uh, love life? Well, Catherine had uh, a number of, of lovers. She had uh, probably about 12 lovers in her reign. So I think one could lead that to the judgment of readers or listeners to decide whether that's promiscuous or not. I think there were a number of factors that make Catherine look more voracious, if you, if you like, than other rulers. One was, of course, that she had come to the throne by usurping power, and she had had lovers before she came to power when she was married to Peter III. There's question about the paternity of her son, uh, for example. So I think from the very beginning, there's a, a slightly salacious sense that this was a woman who found other lovers at court. 
And then I think the other thing about Catherine uh, that was something that did her no credit at all was in her later life, after some serious love affairs, there was a procession of young men at court, and it was rather unseemly, and most of them were rather vacuous, and they didn't last very long. And I think the impression of court at the end of her reign, therefore, was a very negative one. So I can't defend her on those grounds. I suppose I can defend her on a few grounds. One is that she did have some very serious love affairs, genuine ones that lasted a long time with Grigory Orlov, but particularly with Potemkin, which was uh, one of the great love affairs, really, of the 18th century. If one looks at the letters between them, there clearly is a deep love. And then after the first uh, couple of years when he left court, a very deep affection both ways. So that's a genuine uh, love affair. The other one, this is defence, but there's, there's actually something rather sad, rather tragic about Catherine's love life. Uh, she once wrote to somebody saying, more or less, that she would have liked to have loved Peter III. She would have liked to have had a husband that she loved. But he was very boorish. He had his own love affairs. She was almost forced as a young woman, you know, and, uh, to seek love elsewhere. And then none of her love affairs lasted. And some of the young men at the end of her life who should have been terribly grateful for their, you might have thought for their position at court, were unfaithful to her and rather blatantly. So there's something there that means that she can't retain the lovers that she had. And I think probably the real reason for that lies in the way she came to power, the fear that any female ruler would have, in fact, that if you then marry or have a consort who is clearly very important at court, you split the court, that person becomes a, a source of, of influence and power, uh, and ultimately that might threaten her own power. And given that actually she had no right to the throne and had usurped her husband, there's always going to be a vulnerability there. She never says that, of course. She, she couldn't say that. But I think it has to be there under the surface. Mm -hmm. You mentioned there that her husband, Peter III, also had mistresses, and perhaps her behaviour was if not typical, kind of um, not alone, not standing alone among the rulers of the time. So uh, if I can ask perhaps an obvious question and say, why do you think this reputation of her, of her proclivities has taken on this kind of traction, certainly in, in history today? Well, she did have 12 lovers or so, and she did uh, usurp her husband, and there is a question of the paternity of her son, and all that, I think, does lend rise to, to, to sort of comment at the time and thereafter. It's fairly usual for male rulers to have lots of lovers. It's less usual for female rulers. So I suppose there was a sense at the time that this uh, was unusual, shall we say, unacceptable behaviour. That doesn't really account for the, the strength of, of the myths uh, about her. And I, I think part of that is the reaction at the time, the very cruel cartoons of, of Catherine, which live on, uh, stories about Catherine, uh, people perhaps wanting to denigrate Catherine because she was very successful and uh, perhaps that looked too arrogant for a woman to take her down a peg or two. So although this is a time of quite cruel cartoons about uh, uh, male rulers as well, they aren't quite so sexual as the ones about Catherine. So I think it does come uh, partly from what she did. I don't think one can deny that, but also from the fact that she is a woman on the throne of Russia who was very successful and couldn't be ignored. And I think that then gives rise to more accounts of her uh, voracious appetite than, than would be, is justified in any way, in fact. It's a very crude analysis of a woman who had faults, 
but was actually a very serious woman who used to get up very early in the morning with her pen and used to read voraciously the works of, of uh, the best philosophers of the time. Not many rulers do that. You, you've already mentioned how um, these certain accusations um, regarding her behaviour might have been levelled at her because of her sex. How aware do we know was Catherine of the challenges that that might have posed? And is there any evidence for her trying to temper that? That's a very good question. I'm I'm not sure that she is so aware of these sort of sexual innuendos that are, are made about her. She's very, very conscious of her image, though. She was very conscious in her reign when there was a great Cossack rebellion with a, led by somebody called Pugachev, that this, this looked bad to Europe. And when Pugachev was finally captured and brought to, to Moscow, she, he was executed. Uh, but he wasn't tortured to death first because she was totally aware of the image that that gave to Europe. <laughs> so the image wasn't just what she wrote. It was also how Russia looked. And she was certainly very upset when foreign visitors came to Russia and wrote about Russia being backward or Russia being corrupt or decadent or the legal system being corrupt. Uh, When foreigners wrote that, or indeed when Russians wrote that, she reacted very much against that. And that is part of the international image as well as the domestic image. Mm -hmm. So she was succeeded by this um, male dynasty. Um, What can you say about her legacy in that time and how it was shaped by the rulers that followed her? I think there's both a domestic and a foreign policy legacy. The foreign policy legacy is more straightforward in many ways. She'd gained territories. Those territories had to be held. They were extended in Alexander's reign, but not by that much, in fact. This was the the real gain of territory in, in the West, and no Russian ruler wanted to give that up. They particularly didn't want to give up control of Poland, and they particularly didn't want to give up control of the North coast of the Black Sea. And you can see that running throughout Russian history in the 19th century, and indeed in Soviet history, if you'd like to take it further. The domestic legacy, I think, is slightly more ambivalent. There were things that she did. I think she did soften manners in Russia. She did make Russia culturally European. And we know that in the 19th century, Russia was was culturally European. And actually in the Soviet period as well, it was culturally European in literature, in high culture, in art forms. So I think a lot of that goes back to, to Catherine. In terms of institutional social reforms, I think probably she tried very hard to raise the status of towns with very limited success. I think she did more in the case of the nobility. She made the nobility more like its European equivalents in terms of rights, in terms of status, in terms of how they presented themselves uh, abroad. And I think there was a legacy there. I think she made it a European state, and that was something that all Russian rulers, in fact, and and Soviet uh, leaders stuck to. So why do you think that Catherine the Great continues to fascinate today, and what would you perhaps like to... Um, really emphasise about her rule? Well, she fascinates because she is a personality that's larger than life. I think if she'd been uh, extremely plain and (laughs) had had no lovers, uh, I think there would be less of an interest in her. But she fascinates because she was a great ruler. She made Russia definitely a great power and she had a, a legacy both internationally and domestically. And I would say that she made Russia not just a great power but a European great power and that's her legacy. Mm-hmm. That was Janet Hartley. You can read the feature that Janet recently wrote for BBC History magazine about Catherine the Great and plenty more on Russian history at our website, historyextra.com. 
The TV series Catherine the Great begins tonight, the 3rd of October, at 9pm on Sky Atlantic and Now TV. It's due to air in the US on HBO on October the 21st. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when I'll be speaking to William Dalrymple about the East India Company. Thank you.